Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. It's another week, and there's never any shortage of crazy political stories to come out. What kicked it off this week were the excerpts from Bob Woodward's new book, Fear, about the Trump administration. There's a lot of stuff, chaos and division within the West Wing. His chief of staff, John Kelly, reportedly called the president an idiot. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis supposedly said that he has the intelligence of a fifth or sixth grader. You know, it's just such an interesting look into what happened. The president even called Bob Woodward at one point saying, hey, how come you didn't talk to me for the book? And Bob Woodward said, I've tried to get through to you. I spoke to like six people at least, including Kellyanne Conway. And there's a recording of this. It's a phone recording. And this is the best part of it because Kellyanne Conway gets put on the phone to answer for why Bob Woodward didn't get to interview Donald Trump. Why don't you speak to Kellyanne? Ask her. She never told me about it. Kelly, hey, Bob. How are you? Hi. I uh, remember two and a half months ago you came over and I laid out. I wanted to talk to the president and you said you would uh, get back to me. I do. And I put in the request, yeah. but I try to follow all the protocols or else I'm accused of being somebody who doesn't follow protocol. The president was pissed when the excerpts came out from this book, and he got even angrier and more isolated once the New York Times op-ed came out. So to talk more about the Bob Woodward book, we turn to Brian Bender. He's a national security reporter with Politico. Often the insults are about the president's intelligence or his lack of it or lack of curiosity, inability to pay attention, inability to grasp complicated issues, and then unwillingness to learn. One of the quotes that struck me the most was attributed to Secretary Mattis. He's been very careful about not appearing to criticize the president. He's the one guy who's had a lot of influence with President Trump, and I think he's trying to keep that. But he's quoted in the book as basically saying the president has an intelligence level of a fifth or sixth grader. He denies saying that, right. um, we should point out. But he denies using those words, which makes me think that maybe he said something akin to that, but didn't say exactly as it was reported in the book. But again, this is a narrative we've heard before. I think Bob Woodward has come at it in a somewhat dispassionate, very deeply reported way where he talked to dozens of the key players for hours and hours. You know, I think it's also important to point out that the book itself has got this stuff in it, but it's about a lot more than that. It really is the first draft of history of the Trump presidency. He goes through a lot of the decision making, you know, how the president came to pull out of the climate treaty, how the president has dealt with North Korea. So I think when people actually read the book when it comes out next week, yes, these quotes attributed to people criticizing the president will, will certainly be interesting to read and what's shocking, but it's more than that. And it's these quotes that always get that, uh, you know, they're juicy and, you know, you want to know the palace intrigue, what's going on behind the scenes. We've all seen episodes of Veep and how crazy they go on that show. And that's a comedy show. But these books kind of lend to that a little bit. Like, you know, some of these crazy shenanigans are going on. And the problem that the White House has with Bob Woodward, as you were kind of alluding to, is that he's a classic journalist. He doesn't have many credibility issues that, let's say, Michael Wolf had with his previous book. You know, they were able to poke holes through that all over the place. Omarosa, she's kind of a villain in the media sense. People were able to poke holes through that stuff. But Bob Woodward is different and he backs it up. He supposedly has a lot of audio tapes to back up things that he puts in his book as well. 
But, you know, I think the bigger takeaway, especially since this is Bob Woodward and not a former Trump official trying to get revenge or make a ton of money on a bestseller, is this portrayal of a White House that is wholly dysfunctional. I mean, the book, I think, is called Fear for a Reason, which is alluding to some of the president's top advisors being afraid of him, being afraid of what he will do, being right. afraid of how do we navigate him. The fact that his economic advisor, Gary Cohn at the time, reportedly, as Woodward lays out, actually is taking things off of the president's desk because he's worried that the president is going to go off and, in this case, pull out of NAFTA trade agreement and you know upend the world economy. You know, the president would rail against people for undermining him and things like that, but this, these are the, some of his closest allies here in the White House, and they're doing this stuff. It even goes back to the way um, Bob Woodward and the interaction with Kellyanne Conway when he was trying to get Trump to make comments for the book. And she said, hey, you know, I ran it up the right, the proper channels. It got you know, rejected. These people are not putting it all before the president. In every other presidency that Bob Woodward has covered, and there's been many of them, in fact, I think every one since Nixon and Watergate, there's a process for even this basic kind of thing where a journalist with real credibility, a historian, even more than a journalist, comes and says, hey, I want to interview the president. I'm doing a deep dive book on how the presidency's going. You'd think that that would get raised up the channels, but you know, there are no channels at this White House. It's just the way the president has approached his style of leadership. The White House has pushed back on all of this uh, criticisms coming out in the book. And uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, you know, this is just the disgruntled ex-employees and things like that. Um, but where does this put us in the end? I mean, you know, the administration is doing well on the economy right now. Uh, it's booming. So where does the where do these books land? I, I mean, his base is not going to listen or care about it. Uh, the media eats these things up. Uh, like I said, he's having certain amounts of success. Where do these things land? I mean, I think Bob Woodward gets a nice, a nice, you know, runaway bestseller, as he always does. Um, but, you know, in the bigger picture, I think you're probably right. It doesn't really move the needle one way or the other, other than the elections in November. I mean, every midterm election, most of them have always been a referendum on the president. And in most midterm elections, especially a one-term, the first-term president doesn't do that well. His party doesn't do that well. And, you know, despite what Trump says, he did not win in a landslide in 2016. He won, you know, comfortably in the Electoral College, but that's because he won a couple of key states pretty narrowly. And so I think in the end, what's really going to matter is where the American voters are and whether they double down and vote for the Republican Party this November to make sure they keep control of the Senate and the House and, and some of these governorships. And then, you know, of course, two years later is going to be the real test when Trump presumably runs for reelection. Um, but, yeah, the, the book will come and go and, and I'm sure there'll be more like it uh, about this palace intrigue. But, you know, the, the supporters of the president don't seem to be movable. The economy, as you said, is doing well. Uh, there's no major calamities on the horizon, um, hopefully. And so, you know, he may, you know, withstand this just like he's with so many other things that at least in our recent memory would have really had consequences to the president, but don't seem to stick to him. They called Reagan the Teflon president. I mean, um, they didn't even know what they meant by Teflon president until Trump. Brian Bender. National Security Reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
the most explosive political story that happened during the course of the week was when the New York Times published an anonymous op-ed and an essay called I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration. They said that it was a senior official who is part of this group of people that see it fit to basically undermine the president there in his office and keep him from hurting the country. From the essay, they wrote, the dilemma which he does not fully grasp is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I am one of them. So these people are doing all sorts of stuff. We heard those things from Bob Woodward's book where people like Gary Cohn and Rob Porter would be taking stuff off his desk. Not to say that they're part of this group, but people are undermining what the president wants to do because they feel duty to the country that he shouldn't get his way at some point. How has the president responded to this so far, Miranda? In several ways, actually, Oscar. First, he gave reporters who asked him a prepared statement saying this is the stuff we have to deal with, you know, the dishonest media. He then later tweeted a video of his response to the op-ed and then followed it by a second tweet that just said treason in all caps with a question mark. And then finally, a much longer tweet reading, does the so-called senior administration official really exist or is it just the failing New York Times with another phony source? If the gutless anonymous person does indeed exist, the Times must, for national security purposes, turn him or her over to the government at once. The New York Times did say that they checked it. This is a senior official. Who knows what that means? We still don't know. But just one more quote from the essay that was published. This is why many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he is out of office. So this is not just a singular person. This is more than one person in this little group, but we don't know who wrote this essay. And that's the big question. Who did this? And there's theories all over the place. There's a lot of denials coming out of cabinet members. Melania Trump herself had an issue, a denial. What are these people saying, Miranda? Mike Pompeo's traveling in New Delhi. And when asked by reporters if he had written it, he said, it's not mine. And he went on to say that the New York Times is a liberal newspaper that has attacked the administration relentlessly. Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates said that it was patently false. Any speculation written by him is not true. Steven Mnuchin said it was laughable. Rick Perry said that he didn't write the New York Times op-ed, but he also went on to say that hiding behind anonymity and smearing the president makes you a coward. Who do you think did it, Miranda? My personal opinion is that it's at least three people all in cahoots led by Kellyanne Conway. Oh, no. Her husband hates President Trump. That's true, but she's been one of his biggest defenders the entire time. Yeah, I think that she... She's had enough. I think she's had enough. I think that she's really (laughs) trying her best. She's at the end of a rope. Well, for more on this, we spoke to Mike Snyder. He's a reporter with USA Today about why would the New York Times run an unnamed tell-all article? We got into that and a little bit more on who this senior official might be. The senior official, um, which the New York Times said they vetted and that they have actually, they know who the person is, they say, the editorial page folks say that, basically says something that's been talked about since the president took office that about officials who might be adults in the room And this person claims to be one of the adults in the room and says that they wanted to get this point of view out to let people know that there is someone there 
thinking about the country as opposed to the president himself, but to let people know that the president, as they said, continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic. And kind of goes in and gives some background about what's been going on. I think what surprised people the most was that the official revealed early on in the presidency that some of the cabinet had whispered, I think is the verb that they used, about invoking the 25th Amendment, right. which if you read the 25th Amendment, the cabinet and certain officials can collectively come to a, an agreement that the president is unfit for office and take that to the Congress and start a big process, which, as they said, would precipitate a constitutional crisis, to quote the editorial. And they decided not to do that, but instead to try to guide the president or work against the president on some of his day-to-day activities to help achieve his overall goals of what he was trying to do in his presidency. Yeah, the president and others in the White House are furious over this whole thing. They've described the New York Times and this person as gutless. Why would they be anonymous? And he's demanded that the New York Times name who the source is and it's caused this flurry of uh, statements and things like that out of the administration. Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, Kristen Nielsen, James Mattis, Steve Mnuchin, Rick Perry, all sorts of people have already come out with statements saying, we are not the person that wrote this op-ed. Well, and by the time we get done talking, someone else probably will have said they haven't done that also. It will be a lot of ways to look at this. I've heard people looking at phraseology, that the way the person writes. I guess there's people that have AI programs that are looking at this. Whoever wrote this probably put in some phrases that other officials might use just to throw in red herring. Right. So you can't initially find out who they are. Yeah, one and, of those in particular was the use of the word lodestar, which mm-hmm. Mike Pence tends to use a lot in some of his mm-hmm. speeches. So Certainly. that's why people were saying it's got to be Mike Pence, you know, but, <laughs> but you're right. They probably are throwing out some uh, little dodgeballs there. They ran in print edition Thursday, September 6th in the New York Times. But some editors thought maybe people don't understand why there might be a anonymous source used. And, and historically, anonymous sources have been used for to get very important stories out. Obviously, what comes to mind most is the Watergate investigation and the Washington Post reporters' use of a source called Deep Throat. And the reason the New York Times, which said they thought a lot about you about whether they should run this or not, the reason they decided to do this is because this may be the only way at this point to get this point of view out there, because this person may want to keep this job and continue doing what they consider is a important mission for the country. If they came out and said this publicly, obviously they'd be fired, they'd be vilified, they oh, possibly gonna... could come under personal attack. Right. Once the, this, the identity of this person comes out, they're going to be run out of D.C. completely. I mean, mm-hmm. there might be heroes in certain circles, certain political circles at that point, but you can't trust a person like that anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the sources I talked to, to about this story said it would be a massive blow to the credibility of the New York Times if it turns out this person was a pawn on this political chessboard. New York Times said that they've done this a few times, like four times in the past three years or so. But what about journalistic ethics? As a source, as you were saying, as a source in a story, maybe to protect the person. But as an op-ed, obviously this person wants to keep doing what they're doing. But as an op-ed, what do the journalistic ethics ethicists say about this? The idea of using an anonymous sources is, you know, it's a spectrum. And depending on the outlet, they have a different way of allowing that to be used. The New York Times is, at least in most circles, a well-respected place, outlet, media source, and you would expect them to be this to be a trustworthy situation. What 
the concern ethically is if this becomes a regular happenstance and who could tell us what is really happening factually with their name to it and we right. can check it and if the we already have a situation in the US where facts are being debated as either not truth or truth or facts and alternate facts and things like that we will be watching and ethicists will be watching if this causes that spectrum to move one way or another and contribute to the divisiveness that we currently have in the country. Mike Snyder, reporter for USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Always interesting. Here's a quick story for you if you've jumped on the anti-straw bandwagon. Cities across the country, restaurants and bars are all banning single-use plastic straws, but there's a worse offender out there polluting the oceans, and it's cigarette butts. So we spoke to Josh Ocampo, he's a reporter at Mike, about why cigarette butts are worse than plastic straws. According to the Truth Initiative, who's really taken on, you know, anti-cigarette butt pollution, it's something like over a million butts were collected from U.S. waterways in 2016 alone. The butts are known to be super toxic to fish, to dogs, children, in, in super small quantities. So, you know, plastic straws are no longer our number one enemy, it seems right now. Yeah, a, a report by the Ocean Conservancy says that cigarette butts are the most common item collected on beaches and plastic straws and stirs are number seven on the list. So cigarette butts, a lot higher and, and grosser, I would say. You know, they're made of, what are they made of? They're made of this thing called cellulose acetate. Yeah, exactly. And according to, you know, a lot of studies, they're essentially not biodegradable at all. I spoke to an expert who basically said that they don't actually filter anything. A, a butt is also known as a cigarette filter. And if anything, it may actually contribute to another form of cancer that's, that's actually much more dangerous. There are a bunch of efforts to, to help stop this, but none of them are really in action yet, or at least working in a wide scale way. You know, one of the biggest problems, obviously, is we as consumers, people who smoke cigarettes, you just don't throw your trash away properly. You know, you're standing on the side of the road or something like that. You're just going to flick it wherever it lands. And, and you go, that's how fires get started sometimes even. And even somebody, a representative, Philip Morris, said consumers ultimately must make the change. And I think that's 100 percent true. It starts with us. We need to dispose of those things properly. What have some of these programs been so far to help people throw away their cigarette butts? properly. San Francisco instituted a couple programs, essentially public ash cans and ashtrays to help curb the butt pollution. And it did kind of work. And I think in total, there have been about two to three pilot programs. Um, and also a California assemblyman essentially reintroduced legislation that would help to ban the butts, as he says. But it's actually, I believe, failed. I don't know if failed is the correct word, but it hasn't gone into legislation about two or three times now because it's just not getting the support that it's needed. And so right now we're in a really weird position where we're kind of not really solving the butt problem. So it's just kind of going to get worse as far as I can tell. Right. And there's like, like we were saying at the open, there's this crusade against plastic straws, but this is a much bigger problem. All right. Josh Ocampo, reporter for Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.